0: Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the subject of the amazing historical documentary series Biography and Sound, produced by Joseph O. Myers. The NBC series produced 86 wonderful radio biographies on NBC from 1954 to 1958. The biographies sometimes included interviews with the subject of the biography, but always featured comments and discussions of friends, family, colleagues, and the result was a creation of a collection of great shows by the master of radio biographies, Joseph O. Myers. On this track, you will hear the April 10th, 1955, biography and sound documentary on the life of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The air date of this broadcast was just two days short of the 10th anniversary of FDR's death on April 12, 1945. About three weeks before Germany surrendered on May 7th, and a little less than five months before Japan surrendered on September 2nd, 1945, ending World War II. President Roosevelt never got to see the end of World War II. And now, here's the biography and sound. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, which includes comments by Winston Churchill and First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. This is Heirloom Radio. My name is John Lovering. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this broadcast. It's much appreciated.
1: There is a mysterious cycle in human events. To some generations, much is given. Of other generations, much is expected. This ...generation of Americans has a
2: rendezvous
3: with destiny. Ten years ago next Tuesday, Franklin Delano Roosevelt died in his fourth term as President of the United States. What you are hearing are the sounds of his funeral cortege, the muffled drums, the shuffling feet as it winds from Washington's Union Station to the White House. He was 63. Today, a full decade after his death, he is still strongly loved or violently hated. A subject of continuing debate. A man who was many things to many people.
4: I remember FDR as a man of very warm human sympathies. But a man of great strength and very firm conviction. Here was
5: a friendly man.
6: I think history will record the fact that he was probably one of the greatest political leaders this country ever produced.
7: He was a man who could be fervently loved as he could be violently disliked.
8: One instinctively thinks of him as a living person.
2: He undoubtedly was a very great humanitarian. It is difficult, of course. A decade after his death,
9: Distinguish the legend from the man. The National Broadcasting Company's news department presents They Knew President Franklin Roosevelt, a biography in sound edited by Paul Cunningham. Mr. Cunningham.
3: This is a program made up of memories. Most of us remember Franklin Roosevelt. Ten years after his death, these are the memories of the people who knew him best. His doctor, Admiral Ross T. McIntyre.
5: I believe Franklin Roosevelt really enjoyed being president. He was a very sociable person. He loved people. He could walk into any group of people, and he could, without any effort at all, bring them to a point of where they would at least listen to what he had to say. If anyone had charm, Franklin Roosevelt had it.
10: He had this extraordinary capacity for getting people to work together or getting from them some agreed purpose or operation. Lowell Mallette, an information director. Quite a miscellaneous lot of people worked for the president. Your kind of people, his kind of people, my kind of people, many who were not one another's kind of people. One day he asked me to stay after my talk with him and found myself in a meeting between two important people in his administration. These two were at loggerheads, which is a mild way of stating what they felt about one another. It was really unpleasant. Later, I realized that uh, the son of a gun, and we often thought of him as the son of a gun, wanted somebody present when he had to deal with these two people so that they really wouldn't actually start fighting.
11: As you know, he was a garrulous man. He loved to uh, sit down and sick people's brains.
3: Grace Tully, his personal secretary, remembers that he liked company.
11: I'm sure there are many times when every president is lonely. It isn't physical loneliness because, of course, the president always have, has people who uh, would like to be with him. And President Roosevelt was one of these people who never wanted to be alone never wanted to dine alone. He wanted at least one or two people around. He liked the feeling of having somebody around, even if you were not working with him. He liked to know that you were there in case something came up. And also for company, even if you were playing cards. He liked to play
5: poker. Well, the president was quite a poker player, but he loved wild games.
3: Admiral McIntyre.
5: And he usually got his share of the money. Well, it was a very interesting event. It took place way back in the before World War II, and we were up at a hunting lodge in Western Maryland. Jack Garner, Joe Robinson, a lot of the old timers were up there, and we had the poker game going. Well, this game was going along fine, and finally, all of the rest of them got out of the pot, with the exception of the president and the vice president. I'll never forget it. Jack Garner always called the president cap'n, never called him anything else. And so he was crowding him. He'd been crowding him, and the president was raising him. And finally, Garner quit, and the president won
12: the pot with a busted flesh. The president always fancied himself the best cocktail mixer in the world, just like he thought he was the best poker player.
3: Leon Henderson, wartime price administrator, economist, and troubleshooter
12: he always had a lot of fun uh, making the drinks. He'd get the things in and uh, usually before one of those sessions, including the Sunday night sessions, or on the boat or wherever you happen to be, anybody that was going like Hopkins and uh, McIntyre and Steve Hurley and I would always make sure that we got one or two good drinks before we went to take part in the White House uh, drinks. The
11: food was bad, too. I was around him a great deal, and I never thought about his not being able to walk. Of course, he uh, had to have things handed to him, and, it's, uh, and I did it many times. Uh, he would ask for something, and I realized then, of course, he couldn't get it. But that became
5: part of every day. Very few people ever thought about the fact that this man was a cripple. It was necessary for the president to stand in great auditoriums such as Madison Square Garden, Our job then was to find a way that he could walk across the stage, that he could stand for a period of a half hour or more. He was willing to work in the pool, and he did that every day. And then after that, he had thorough massage and exercise of his legs that he could not use. And so it was that this man, with the aid of his braces, would walk, any distance that was necessary across a stage, up to several hundred feet, it would be just like you or I trying to run a hundred yards at top speed.
11: He didn't always go to church on Sunday because sometimes it was rather difficult. The only day he had really a real rest was Sunday when he could do what he would like to do. And I think for that reason the Lord forgave him if he didn't go actually physically to church.
3: And Miss Tully remembers how her boss reacted to criticism.
11: I have read many times that the president did bear grudges, that he uh, uh, held these grudges long and never forgave people, and I disagree with it completely. I think I had a better opportunity to observe him day by day, and I know very well that the president did not. Now, that doesn't say that there were some people that he didn't like. Being human, of course, he was a person who could dislike people, but I really don't know of anybody that he actually hated But when they made attacks on Mrs. Roosevelt and his children, he felt it very deeply and always remembered it. I
10: had an experience of that kind one time, without naming which one of the sons it was. Lowell Mellett again. He gave me the kind of a defense or explanation of a son that any father would give concerning his own son. And he did it at great length and with the more feeling, I believe, than any other time I ever had him talk with me. I was really overcome by uh, this fatherhood of his toward those children.
3: Eleanor Roosevelt managed the difficult task of maintaining her own personality. But above all, she was his wife.
8: I think his most endearing qualities were his enjoyment of children, very young children. He always got on very well with them, and I think at heart he stayed a child in many ways. So many men keep a certain boyishness, I think he kept it all through his
13: life. Franklin was a boy all by himself to a certain extent.
3: Franklin Roosevelt and Arthur de Graff were boys together at Hyde Park before the turn of the century.
13: He had no brothers to play with. We used to see him ride his horse up to the post office with his mother and father, as he grow older he he had they used to go ice boating on the river here with us with with all the rest of the boys here. He was he was good he was a good rugged kid. The Rogers boys had the uh, a ball club. Some of the boys from the village used to play on. He played a little with us, but not very much. Franklin wasn't much of a ball player. He played I've seen him play two, three times, that's about all. His mother was so tawny with him, you know, as much as he wanted to be a good mixer. It, 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 was a, it was a handicap to him, but the simple reason was, Franklin, don't do this, Franklin, do do, do that, don't you see? Whether you've got one child like that, when they come over there, now, he was, as I say, he'd say, all right, I've got to go home and dress up and eat my dinner. He was all alone, and he couldn't, uh, couldn't very well make it any different, don't you see? You see, he was a boy who was sent away to school out to Groton, and, and there's where he went to school and all those boys.
3: Mrs. Sarah Delano Roosevelt was a strong woman and had a dominant influence on her only son, especially after his father died when Franklin was a freshman at Harvard. After Harvard came marriage to a distant cousin, Eleanor Roosevelt. Law school, beginnings of a career. He first entered politics as a candidate for the New York State Senate. He won. I
13: remember just when he went to the 21st campaign, they had a little Maxwell. I guess he wore the same hat all the way through. (laughs) From the time he started, that was a great hobby his, you know. He rambled all over the county here. He was a good campaigner.
3: He spent the First World War as President Wilson's Assistant Secretary of the Navy. He always thought of himself as a Navy man. In 1920, he ran for Vice President and lost. A year later, he was stricken by polio. His recovery was long and painful, and he remained a cripple the rest of his life. In 1928, a man in a wheelchair ran for governor of New York. Al Smith headed the ticket as Democratic candidate for president. Smith lost. Roosevelt won. Senator Herbert Lehman was his lieutenant governor.
7: Someone once asked him while he was governor how he managed not to show the tensions of some of the problems which confronted us in those days. He said as well as I can recall, well, I have made the decisions and I let Herbert do the worrying for me. I was the Herbert in this case. I was privileged to share his problems with him, but I did not share his capacity for throwing off the worry that followed the responsibility. He was a man who could because he had to shed some of the
14: heavy cares of office."
3: Judge Sam Rosenman was his friend, associate, and speechwriter from the Albany days onward.
14: Most of the four years uh, during which he was governor uh, were concerned with uh, conflicts of policy with the Republican legislature. And I think uh, the result of those conflicts uh, did a great deal to bring him national prominence and make him a national figure and a natural candidate for national office. The first impact of
15: his great ability in the science of politics came known to me in the pre-convention days of 1932. Colonel Jacob Arvey of Chicago, politician. It must be apparent to all that Mr. Roosevelt had the art of making people come to him whom he wanted to see and seeing that they discussed with him the subjects which he wanted to discuss and of asking him to do the things which he himself wanted to do when he, through Jim Farley and others, was making a bid for the Democratic nomination for president. I know of many Chicago leaders, myself not included, who asked for audiences with the then governor of New York. In other words, these men came to the then governor Roosevelt to ask him to become the Democratic nominee for president. There was no question in my mind that Franklin Roosevelt was ambitious to go to the White House and had planned on his nomination in 1932. But he had the rare faculty of arousing enthusiasm among his followers by making them think that he did what they wanted him to do. While he
16: was running for the nomination, we were in the process of preparing the speeches that he was to make uh, in the election campaign. And while he was in the campaign for election, we were already discussing what he'd do after he was inaugurated uh, in March. Raymond Moley,
3: professor, journalist one of the first to break with Roosevelt. He organized the Brain
16: Trust. I never was particularly enamored of the expression, but it uh, caught on and got into the dictionary. When he was uh, running for the nomination, he asked me to gather together some people who were more or less specialists on uh, various matters of national policy and carry on, as it were, sort of seminars up in Albany. And out of that, uh, ultimately, uh, grew what uh, the public called uh, the brain trust. My departure from Roosevelt certainly indicated no uh, lessening in my respect for the man as a personality or uh, any fundamental uh, dissatisfaction with what had happened previously. It was the new turn that had taken. I uh, didn't agree with uh, Roosevelt's... uh, appeals in 1935 and in 1936 because it seemed to me that what was happening was that we were dividing the people of this country into sharply antagonistic uh, classes. And it seemed to me that the time had come to heal the wounds that uh, political conflict and economic uh, upsets had created and to uh, bring about uh, national unity.
6: No one, in my judgment, will ever be able to question his astuteness as a political leader.
16: A man
3: who knows politics, James A. Farley, campaign manager, national chairman, and postmaster general.
6: Well, I've always felt that the first hundred days of Franklin D. Roosevelt's administration was, from my point of view, the most interesting period. He took over at a time when the country was at a very low ebb. People had lost confidence in their government, right or wrong. As soon as he took over, he delivered that very famous address, which all who heard it will always remember. Raymond Moley remembers the original of that speech
3: and an incident involving Louis McHenry Howe, the president's oldest political associate. It began with
16: a talk with Roosevelt. He and I uh, got together one evening in the library up at Hyde Park, I produced the draft that I had written. He uh, laid it on a table beside the fire, and I sat opposite him. And uh, he took out a pad of his own. He said, "If uh, I take a draft of a speech in uh, to uh, Louis Howe tomorrow morning, that's in your handwriting." Uh, Louis is going to be so jealous that uh, he'll probably uh, have a heart attack. So I, uh, I'd better get it in my own handwriting. So we went through the whole uh, draft, discussing each sentence carefully and rephrasing some of them, and uh, in that way put together uh, the speech as it was uh, rendered uh, two weeks later in Washington. The next day, Louis, very anxious that no one else should have any credit for uh, the operation, including the uh, president-elect himself, decided that he would put the speech in his own writing. And he copied off what uh, Roosevelt had written the night before. In the course of uh, Louis's drafting, which was really copying, Louis incorporated a sentence which has become famous. It was the sentence saying, We have nothing to fear, but fear. Roosevelt adding the word itself.
17: This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, both truth, frankly and boldly. Nor need we shrink from honestly speaking conditions in our country today, This great nation will endure as it has endured. We'll abide and we'll prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief
16: that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. That quotation was taken by Louis. From, uh, I remember distinctly, some uh, ad of a department store. Playwright
9: Robert Sherwood helped to write speeches, too. Whoever may have contributed a phrase here or an idea there, the final speeches expressed the highly individual character and the philosophy and the faith and also the personal style of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The fact is that he used many different writers in his years as governor of New York and as president. I worked on the president's speeches during the last five years of his life. I never was paid for this work. That is, I was not paid in money. All that I got out of it was the greatest satisfaction, the greatest wealth of memories that I have ever known. If you read all of those speeches today, you will know that they were all the work of one man. When a new speech was coming up, Rosenman, Harry Hopkins, and I would usually meet with the president for dinner in his upstairs study. He would tell us in a general way what he wanted to say. One of his secretaries, Missy LeHand or Grace Tully, would probably be there to take notes. Then we would go to the cabinet room in the west wing of the White House and write a first draft, which would be delivered to FDR at his breakfast the next morning. Then, during the day, between appointments, the president would see us and dictate changes. Often, the final draft would bear little or no resemblance
14: to the first one. Judge Rosenman. He very often used uh, phrases which were symbolic of whole ideas and whole objectives, like the New Deal, economic, royalist, rendezvous with destiny, which uh, expressed ideals and at the same time retained simplicity. He used to attune not only the language, but his method of speaking, the kind of eloquence that he used, the kind of one syllable words that he used, to uh, make it appear as though it were a homey chat to people who were listening across the fireside with him, to explain to the American people the facts of a certain situation in a way which they would understand. The first fireside chat had to do with uh, probably the most complicated economic situation which any president has ever had to deal with. On March 6th. The president closed all the banks of the United States by executive order and then opened them uh, three or four days later. The purpose of the first fireside chat was to explain this very complicated financial manipulation. I remember that the Treasury submitted to him a draft of a speech explaining what was going on. It was a very learned dissertation on banking and on financial institutions, but it would have been completely lost on the American people who were seeking some sort of explanation of what was going on. And I was there when the president decided that he wouldn't use any part of it and sat down and dictated this first fireside chat in almost monosyllables. I can assure you, my friend, that it is safer to keep your money in a reopened
16: bank than it is to keep it under the mattress. The success of our whole national program depends, of course, on the cooperation of the public, on its intelligent support, and its use of a reliable system. Remember that the essential accomplishment of the new legislation is that it makes it possible for banks more readily to convert their assets into cash than was the case before.
8: A New Deal, they called it. Madam Frances
3: Perkins, Secretary of Labor. The first woman ever to serve in a cabinet.
8: It was the idea of social justice, as we call it now. The idea that the whole government should work to serve the interests and the needs, to serve the needs, really, of those in the population who were most disadvantaged, who were most in trouble because of a great and very little understood economic depression which had engulfed the world. Those of us who were advising him couldn't make it clear what we were trying uh, to accomplish by these large economic regulations, until he hit upon this phrase, a floor under wages so they can't sink below a certain point, a ceiling over ours so they can't go beyond a certain point. The New
3: Deal was an improvisation intended to reshape the American economy. There were 12 million unemployed. There was destitution. Out of the improvisation came the alphabet agencies. AAA, NRA, WPA, PWA, SEC, CCC, TNEC, NLRB. And these are only a few. The Supreme Court threw out some, but the country was never the same again. Among the chief architects of the New Deal was Henry A. Wallace, editor, corn grower, farm belt Republican.
2: Well, in theory, he was very much uh, taken with the idea that there should be a unity between the southern farmers and the Midwestern farmers, who traditionally had been separated because uh, the southern farmers were Democrats and the northern farmers were Republicans. And uh, so he uh, liked the idea of having them all pulling together for a single program. He may have been somewhat politically minded in that, I don't know. Mechanism for broadening his interest uh, really came, it seems to me, through the Commodity Credit Corporation, and that was a rather strange story, because in the first instance, uh, President Roosevelt uh, authorized the formation of the Commodity Credit Corporation with the idea that he was going to buy gold with it. You'll remember that he was uh, endeavoring to raise the price of gold all through the summer of 1933. And along about that time, Cotton Ed Smith, who on many occasions fought the president most bitterly, was concerned that the price of cotton was not rising fast enough. And uh, the upshot of Cotton Ed Smith's pressure was that we used the Commodity Credit Corporation uh, to make uh, loans on cotton. It then became possible... Uh, to use the uh, Commodity Credit Corporation to make loans on uh, crops in the North. It is uh, curious that uh, one of the outstanding Democratic enemies of the president should have been so helpful.
6: You are listening to They Knew President Franklin Roosevelt, a biography in sound. Almost all the New Dealers are gone from the political
3: scene now, dead or scattered. Wallace runs a farm in upstate New York. Benjamin Cohen, half of the once famous team of Corcoran and Cohen, is a lawyer and foreign policy advisor to the Democratic Party.
18: One of the striking things, I think, about the Roosevelt era is the persuasive influence on the president upon many who rarely or infrequently saw him. Roosevelt conveyed to us a feeling of mission and a purpose. There may have been in those days some subtle political intrigue going on, but they did not dominate the scene. And it is significant that not only were people like Mr. Hopkins and Ickes and Corcoran part of uh, the essence of his team, but the equally important part of his team were the halls, the Baruchs the Pat Harrison and the Jimmy Burns. He was insistent that these people work together and resolve their differences. That was one of
3: his
7: great talents.
3: Senator Lehman remembers the middle years of the New Deal.
18: I
7: recall vividly the only time I had a great public break with him. I could not go along with his Supreme Court packing plan. I opposed him publicly. I thought he was in the wrong. I am very sure he did not cherish my opposition to him, but his was such a warm, all-embracing nature, comprehending objects far beyond the present moment, that our differences were soon all forgotten in the broader medley of common beliefs and common principles that we shared.
3: NBC's Washington correspondent, Richard Harkness, believes a change took place in those years.
19: I'd say that, Mr. Roosevelt while he was basically a friendly and warm personality, also had a very cold-blooded side to him when it came to his politics and to his legislative program. Mr. Roosevelt, after his election in 1936, was somewhat of a changed man, I say. The reason for it is quite plain. He defeated Alf Landon by a landslide. He carried 46 of the 48 states. Mr. Roosevelt then came forward with an unprecedented program to pack the Supreme Court. I accompanied Mr. Roosevelt on his famous purge trip of 1938 when he came up through the South and attempted to purge such old-line Democratic standbys in the South as Senator Walter George of Georgia, the late to Senator Cotton Ed Smith of South Carolina, uh, Senator Millard Tidings of Maryland... That was a cold-blooded attempt to use his personality, his influence, and his leadership to defeat these Democrats, largely because they had opposed his Supreme Court reorganization plan, which he launched in 1937.
3: And NBC's Earl Godwin, dean of the Washington Correspondents, remembers the famous news conferences.
1: He thought the Supreme Court were simply nine old fuddy-duddies. Then and there was planted the seed for his later court-packing plan, which failed, but at the same time seemed to stir the court into a series of pro-New Deal opinions that made Roosevelt's program solid. The New Deal's meetings with newspapers and radio folks were planned carefully by an expert, Stephen T. Early, who had been an AP man at the State War Navy building in the old days and had the quality of talking back to his boss when necessary. Roosevelt, said early to me one time, thinks he knows all about newspaper and newswork because for a year he was an editor of the Harvard Crimson. As we would file into that Oval Office, he always spent a few minutes chatting and kidding with the folks that got up close to his desk. Some of that was private and priceless. Roosevelt did not like hypothetical questions. He called them iffy, and he warned against asking iffy questions at his first conference. He knew many of us by our first names. Every now and then he would remind us of his views, that we were poor working folks and on his side, but that our bosses, the publishers, or radio station owners were all against him. But if you happened to be a correspondent of a friendly newspaper, you had it all your own way. Official statements really have no morals, and I ruefully recall reporting statements in good faith later to find out there was no truth in them. And one day, because some ghostwriter had shot off his mouth at the White House without consultation, Steve Early laid to rest the use of a phrase, White House spokesman. The White House spokesman thereupon died. Roosevelt had a peevish attitude toward questions concerning his intentions about that third term. Of course, I
6: always thought that that was a very serious mistake. Jim Farley again.
3: He was national chairman then.
6: I so told Mr. Roosevelt... At that very famous Hyde Park conference I had with him in early July of 1940, prior to the convention. Down through the months that preceded that conference, he kept telling me he was not a candidate and would not be a candidate, and that he was for Secretary of State Hall. I, too, was for Secretary of State Hall. Hickies has written the story and has written three volumes already, and He's dead and gone, but there are a lot of untruths in that story, insofar as they relate to me and to my activities. Nobody knows any better than Ickes that I was not a candidate for the presidency. I was for Mr. Hull. Ickes knows that. I urged Mr. Roosevelt to run upon the theory that he was doing a disservice to his country, his party, and to himself. I felt that he was getting older. And that the years ahead would likely to be more difficult, and we would likely get in trouble in Europe in the light of events. He did become a very sick man, unfortunately, for himself and for the country and for the world. The condition that he was in in Yalta and Tehran was, was uh, a very bad situation for us and for him. And he pointed out to me that. People felt that he was the only man who could run and win and that he should carry on. And I told him that was a mistake in my judgment. That I didn't think that he or anyone else was the indispensable man. I told him that I wouldn't go along with the third term because I didn't believe in it. And that I would resign as national chairman and postmaster general. And I would stay sufficiently long as national chairman to set up the organization, which I did.
3: And Roosevelt? Well, a man's doctor notices a lot. Admiral McIntyre.
5: He hoped to be able to retire to Hyde Park at the end of 1940, What? when Hitler attacked in 1939 and World War II was sure to be visited upon us, I am sure that he allowed this consideration to send him on. And so... When he came up to make his own decision, and let me say this, his decision to run was his and his alone. He knew his physical state, and yet he believed that his knowledge, the continuity that he could give, was what he should do. No one now
3: remembers, and perhaps no one ever knew, when Franklin Roosevelt decided to upset tradition and seek a third term. But shortly before the Republican convention in 1940, he made overtures to some high-ranking Republicans to serve in his cabinet. One of them was Alf Landon, whom the Republicans had run for president four years before. Landon was strongly opposed to the third term. Another was Landon's running mate, Colonel Frank Knox. Landon was invited to the White House for lunch. First, he talked to Knox.
17: Colonel Knox said to me, well, Al, he couldn't run for a third term if he wanted to. In my visit with him two weeks ago, he said to me, look at me, Frank. I'm not physically able to run if I wanted to. And the colonel illustrated by holding out his hands to me, how Mr. Roosevelt's hands he shook. And I said, yes, I know, but I don't trust him." Frank said, well, couldn't we take a letter, each one of us, to hold? that he wasn't going to be a candidate for a third term. And I said, well, Frank, what position does that leave us in? He told you he wasn't. You asked him for this letter. I said, that leaves us in a sort of a position of calling the president a liar when we're going into his cabinet. Frank said, I guess you're right. Tell him you speak for me. Well, I said, "Uh, Frank, you ought to do that yourself. He said, all right, I will. President and I had a very delightful visit for two hours, in which uh, the nearest we ever got to a discussion of the cabinet position, he said to me, uh, now Al, don't believe everything you read in the newspapers. These newspapers have been talking about uh, that I was going to name some Republicans in my cabinet. He says, I got to make some changes. He said, uh, Madam Perkins shows the mistake of uh, naming a woman to high office. He said, i got to make a change in the Labor Department, Secretary. Uh, he says, the situation in the War Department is intolerable. I've got to name a new Secretary of War. I uh, told Governor Edson when he ran for Governor of New Jersey that I'd have to name a new Secretary of the Navy. I've got in mind 25 or 30 men. He says, I don't know whether they're Republicans or Democrats. He said, don't believe what you read in these newspapers. If you want to know, call me. I'll tell you. When I left the White House at 2 o'clock, I called the Colonel Knox and told him what had happened. And I read him the statement I was going to give to the press conference, and he said, that's bully, that's grand. Tell him you speak for me. I hesitated. Uh, Frank caught the hesitation. He said, don't you think so? Well, I said... Uh, Frank, for the sake of your own prestige and your own leadership, I think it would be better for you to make your own statement rather than a Me Too statement. Man politics always got to think of his friends if he's going to last. And uh, Frank Knox had been a bully man to work with all through the campaign. He said, All right, I will. I'll put it on the wire in an hour. Well, never did come. Between. Uh, 2.30 30 and 4 o'clock, evidently the White House got a hold of Colonel Knox. I don't know whether it was intentional or not, but the President's timing was certainly uh, pretty devastating to the Republican campaign. If both of us had gone in the cabinet, there wouldn't have been anything left of any campaign in 1940.
7: Great anxiety was felt by President Roosevelt and indeed by thinking men throughout the United States about what would happen to us, the President felt to the depths of his being that the destruction of Britain would not only be an event fearful in itself, but that it would expose to mortal danger the vast and as yet largely unarmed potentialities and the future destiny of the United States. Winston
3: Churchill became an American hero in the early years of World War II. In the years that Britain stood alone, he became a personal friend to Franklin Roosevelt. On June 22, 1941, Hitler invaded Russia. On December 7, 1941...
6: Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live... In infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan.
20: FDR established a map room in the first week after Pearl Harbor. George Elsie, then a young naval lieutenant,
3: was assigned to the White House map room.
20: There were maps on all the walls and sliding panels... ...around the room to give more wall space. These maps showed every theater of the war, all the oceans. It was the president's custom to come into the map room... ...on his way to the office each morning. He'd usually come down the elevator and we'd hear the bell... ...that the Secret Service would ring so we knew he was on his way. There'd be a tapping at the door and one of us would open the door... ...and in he'd roll. He never walked at that time. He always came in on his wheelchair. Fallow was trotting alongside... Sometimes a secret service man would sort of give him a push to get him started into the room. Then he'd wheel himself on into the room and move around from wall to wall, map to map, seeing what had happened since he'd been there the night before. He could spot right away whenever a change had been made in the location of a major task force or ship or something of that sort, but he would never interfere. He made it clear over and over again that he wanted to know exactly what was going on but he wasn't going to interfere with his commander in the field in the way the battle was fought, the way the task force was sent out. That was a big difference, and I can remember hearing the President and Churchill debate it one day in the map room. Mostly, he came in to read the cables. There were long and factual ones from General Eisenhower in North Africa and later Europe. There were the pretty prosaic and terse messages from Admiral Nimitz out in the Pacific, the bombastic and eloquent ones from General Art MacArthur in the Southwest Pacific, and then the explosive and colorful and very terse ones from Admiral Halsey. The president would sit there with his cigarette holder, clamp between his teeth, and run through these messages as quickly as possible. But I think the greatest interest that he had in the map room was keeping track of the messages that the president exchanged between Churchill and between Stalin and Chiang Kai-shek, and de Gaulle and Giraud and the other political leaders of the war. There were about 2,000 of these messages between Prime Minister Churchill and President Roosevelt during the war, sometimes some outrageous puns from Churchill. There weren't nearly as many messages with Uncle Joe Stalin. Uncle Joe was a name that President coined for Stalin early in the war, one that stuck with him and one that years later he actually confessed to Stalin, but face-to-face that he used. The Stalin ones were, were much more difficult. Stalin was a, a, a tough fellow to dicker with, a tough man to bargain with. His messages were sometimes pretty rude. The president wasn't quite sure as he'd sit there and scratch his head and look at them, whether it was just somebody who hadn't done a good job of translating in the Russian embassy or whether perhaps it really was intended to be as, as bad as it sounded. The last few weeks of his uh, life, March and April of '45, the messages from Stalin were outrageously insulting as he accused the president of double-crossing him and of double-dealing, uh, accusing the Americans of wanting a separate peace with Hitler. And he liked to travel. He, would, he wanted to travel a lot more than the Secret Service ever let him to see at closer range what they were doing. When he went off to an international conference, which happened every few months, he always took some of the map room staff with him. And whenever we went, we would set up a portable map room, whether it was in the Citadel at Quebec or over at Cairo or Tehran or Yalta, and try and keep him posted there on an hour by hour basis of what was going on. And in these map rooms in other countries, he was always very proud of the fact that he got the news just a little bit faster than Churchill or his other colleagues. Admiral
3: McIntyre went along on most of the wartime trips.
5: We were going to fly one time from Tunis over to Cairo. The Germans were in Crete. Over to Cairo. The Germans were in Crete. And it would have been a very happy thing for them if they could have gotten our big transport plane. The president finally agreed to go by night. Although he objected strenuously, he said, I want to see the area over which the fighting in North Africa took place. Well, he didn't get away with it on the way over. We did go at night. But on the way back, he flatly refused. He said that he would not fly back to Tunis by night. He was going to see that area over which the fighting took place in North Africa when Montgomery did such a great job in driving back Rommel. And so we did. Sear was not in his makeup. We always enjoyed our fishing trips. There was only one thing that the ship's company complained about. We caught too many fish, and the paymaster saved too much money by serving fish to the crew at practically every meal, so we became very unpopular. President would eat fish three times a day if if he could get it.
11: I like to recall a day during the war years when late in the afternoon one of the secret Service men came in to notify me that the President had received a shipment of oysters. Grace
3: Tully, personal secretary.
11: And when I went in to work with him on the mail, I told him of the arrival of the oysters. And he looked at me and said, Fine, Grace, I'll have them for dinner tonight. And I said, no, Mr. President, I'm sorry. You can't have them tonight because they haven't gone through the regular test. He said, but I want them for dinner tonight. And I said, but I'm sorry, Mr. President, I just have to make one mistake. He said, I think you and Mike Riley carry this thing too far. I'm going to have them for dinner tonight, and I'll tell you what you do. And I said, what, sir? He said, you call up the kitchen and have them open two dozen oysters. And you and some of the Secret Service men and Dorothy Brady eat them. And if you're not dead by seven o'clock, I'm going to have the oysters for dinner.
4: The president was a great simplifier.
3: Chester Bowles came to Washington as a member of the president's war team. He had a great knack of
4: taking a very complicated subject and wrapping it up in very simple terms. His principal focus was on winning the war in the shortest possible time with the least loss of life even more important, of trying to establish the conditions which would make a third world war uh, impossible. Uh, sometimes I wished he'd spent more time on the civilian war effort, but this was furthest from his thoughts. He turned the job over to other people. He assumed they were doing, carrying out the job as they should do it, and that was that. At least it would have been a lot easier for us if he'd known they're a little bit more intimately connected with it. I certainly don't mean any criticism because there's so many hours in a day, and certainly he filled those hours with all his tremendous energy on the tremendously important task that the president had. Wartime leadership and the
3: fourth-term campaign took their toll of his health and vitality. Here is Mrs. Roosevelt again.
8: In 1944, I think many of us were worried about his health, but the doctors came and he had a very complete
5: examination and they seemed to
8: feel that he could do it.
5: It is my opinion that through the summer of 1944, he was in very good physical condition. And it was not until the period after the election that fatigue again gave us concern.
3: The days were running out. His secretary saw a tired man.
5: I would say only in the last few months of
11: his life did I notice any change in the president. And certainly after he came back from Yalta, I noticed a very, very drastic change in the president. In his looks, he had lost a great deal of weight. The color of his skin was not good. I recall going up to the Congress when he made his report on the Yalta Conference, when for the first time that I ever recall in the 17 years I was with him, that he ever personally mentioned his infirmity.
4: My
13: President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Congress, I hope that you will pardon me for an unusual posture of sitting down during the presentation of what I want to say, but I know that you will realize that it makes it a lot easier for me in not having to carry about 10 pounds of steel round on the bottom of my legs, and also because of the fact that I have just completed a
6: 14,000-mile trip
11: I know he felt very tired because he wasn't up to doing what he had been able to do and he was getting just slightly irritable which was very unusual for him.
3: Leon Henderson called at the White
12: House. He sent for me to discuss Germany. And I got in and I was just absolutely shocked and appalled. He couldn't quite recollect what it was I started the ball rolling by discussing some of the things about Germany, but he was halting and uh, just uh, couldn't keep a complete control of the conversation, which he'd always dominated before, no matter how tired he was. And I ventured a remark that from what I had picked up in uh, London that uh, it looked as if the uh, Russians really meant to play ball in the post-war session. He said, I'm not so sure of that. I'm not so sure of that. After his return from Yalta,
5: he had the misfortune to contract a mild cold, and it was for that reason that he went to Warm Springs, the place that he always believed that he regained his strength. And he usually did. He went there to regain his appetite to get into condition for the trip to San Francisco, which would open up the United Nations Convention.
3: One of his visitors that last day in Washington was Madame Perkins.
8: On the day before he went to Warm Springs, where he died, He said to me laughingly and jokingly, well, I'm going to write this speech while I'm down in Warm Springs, Uh, then I'm going out to deliver it, and I'm only going to stay one day. I'm not going to get involved in all that bickering. I'm going to stay one day, then I'm coming back here and fix up a few things, and then, and he whispered it almost roguishly, I'm going to England. What I said, you can't possibly do that. You must not risk your life crossing the ocean in times like these. It isn't safe. And then he threw his head back, as he so often did, and laughed. And he put his hand over my arm with a strong grasp. And he said, Francis, I'll tell you something. You keep still about it. The war will be over in May. And I will go in peace and freedom. Yes, it will, said he as I shook my head. Yes, it will. He knew then that the war was about over.
3: He died April 12, 1945, in Warm Springs, Georgia, of a cerebral hemorrhage. With him was his appointment secretary, William Hassett.
21: He had dictated the day before his death a draft, not the final one, of an address for the Jefferson Day Dinner on April 13th. The final sentence was found in his own handwriting after his death. Thus, it came about that the word faith was the last word he spoke in preparing his last message to his countrymen. Today, he wrote, I measure the sound, solid achievement that can be made at this time by the straight edge of our own confidence and our resolve. And to you and to all Americans who dedicate themselves with us to the making of an abiding peace, I say, the only limit to our realization of tomorrow will be our doubts of today. Let us move forward with strong and active faith. His body, as he had asked, was taken to Hyde Park for burial.
3: Every year since, there have been many visitors. Some stopped to talk to the superintendent, George Palmer.
18: During the first couple of years that we were open, uh, there were no children who came in here who did not know who President Roosevelt was. And they still recognized the name. It, uh, it meant something to them. It meant a man who had been president of the United States. But after nine years, ten years after Mr. Roosevelt's death, we have 6th, 7th, 8th, and 9th graders In school who didn't know President Roosevelt. He is is not a a man to them. He has become a part of history.
9: NBC has presented another in its widely acclaimed Biographies in Sound. They knew President Franklin Roosevelt was produced under the supervision of William McAndrew and Joseph Myers for NBC News. Paul Cunningham was your narrator and editor. Tonight, join Horace Sutton for the NBC Travel Bureau over most NBC radio stations. <laughs>